Hey, good morning, folks. We want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time here at the Kerwinsville Christian Church. And we are so glad that you are watching with us this morning. We are doing a survey through the Old Testament, and we are up to the books of First and Second Kings, Second Chronicles. And we've entitled this section with regards to these books, Israel's Kings and Prophets. And we're working our way to the end of First Kings, and we've been focusing for the last few weeks on the interaction between the prophet Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, and one of the most wicked kings in the Old Testament, Ahab. And so we're going to see some interaction with them again today. Now, we're going to have one more lesson with regards to Ahab, and that'll be next week when we talk about his death. But today we want to focus again, seeing really the corrupt nature of Ahab and his interactions and his confrontation with Elijah and learn some things from this interaction. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be done with Elijah, because when we get into 2 Kings, we still have some more things to talk about with regards to his life and, of course, with his predecessor, with the guy that will follow him, Elisha. So let's get right into our study. We're going to focus on chapter 20 and chapter 21. Now, when you look at chapter 20, the focus is Ahab's struggle with Ben-Hadad, and that is the king of Syria, or the king, the Aramean king, or the Aram, one of the, like the lead king among the kings of the Aramean tribes, or the king of Aram. That is the ancient kingdom of Aram. And so we're going to focus on that, and that's going to be primarily in chapter 20, verses 1 to 43. Now, when we do this, you're going to see a couple of things here. Number one, you're going to continue to see the grace of God, even in spite of the wickedness of Israel. And you're going to see really another example of the disobedience of Ahab towards the Lord and the end result of that. What will happen with that? So let's get right into it. So we're going to focus, first of all, with two primary battles that are going to be focused on. First of all, there's the battle for Samaria, which we see in chapter 20, verses 1 to 22. And then we're also going to see the battle for Apex, which is in chapter 20, verses 23 through 43. So let's start with the battle for Samaria. When we start out in the text, we're going to see that Ben-Hadad lay siege to Samaria with an alliance of 33 Aramean kings. So the text begins with really a battle, a war, and the capital city of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, is Samaria, and it's been surrounded by the Syrians. And he's trying to lay siege to it. Now, usually what happens with a siege is it can last for months, until one, the person that is being surrounded, capitulates. And how does that happen? Well, he's either beaten, taken over, and destroyed, or he becomes a vassal king to the army that is invading. So Ben-Hadad demanded silver, gold, and Ahab's loveliest wives and children. So he's saying, I'm not going to come in there unless you give me 
all of your silver, all of your gold, and your loveliest wives and children. Now, Ahab was willing to give in to Ben-Hadad's demand, but he wanted more. So Ahab's willing to do it, but Ben-Hadad, when he got back the affirmative answer, the text tells you, he decided, well, maybe they're holding out on me, and I want even more now, okay? I want even more. Well, <clears throat> Ahab responded that he would not give in to the second demand. So he wasn't going to do this further. He was going to give the initial gold and silver, and he was going to give his loveliest wives and children. Think about that. But when Ben-Hadad is asking for even more, he decides, I can't do that. I can't do that. Well, here's what happens. Ben-Hadad then stated that he would completely destroy Samaria. I think the word is, if anyone would find anything of its dust left. So he's bragging he's going to just wipe the place out. Well, Ahab then told Ben-Hadad not to boast until he obtained the city. It's no sense saying what you're going to do until you do it. It's kind of like two tough guys facing off, taunting each other. That's what's happening here, okay? Two tough guys facing it off, taunting each other. Now, it becomes interesting now because here's what happens. A prophet of the Lord shows up. Now, there's very few of them in the land, remember, because Ahab has been wanting to kill them. Well, here we're going to see an example of the grace of God. A prophet of the Lord appeared to Ahab and proclaimed that the Lord will deliver them. Really? You would think God was, God's already told them earlier that he's going to destroy Israel, maybe Maybe this is what he's going to do, allow them to be destroyed. No, no, God has a plan. The destruction is going to come in his time. It isn't going to be the Syrians. And so he tells, really, the text tells you that he's telling Ahab, I'm going to deliver you. Ahab asked how the victory would come, and the prophet gave the king battle plans. Now, it's very interesting. When you read the text, he's basically saying, to the king, it's your young military leaders that are going to do it. Your young military leaders are going to give you the victory. So the young leaders provided Ahab the opportunity to defeat the army of Ben-Hadad. So here's what happens. Somehow, even though they're overwhelmed by numbers, there's a greater Syrian army, these young leaders provide the opportunity for Ahab to defeat the army of Ben-Hadad. So, of course, the siege ends. Now, it's interesting because the prophet of the Lord shows up again. So the prophet then told Ahab to strengthen himself, for in the spring the Syrians will attack. So the prophet of the Lord shows up and says, okay, victory is great. I know you want to celebrate, but here's what I'm going to tell you to do. You need to strengthen yourself. You need to reinforce yourself because when spring comes, and that's usually when battles begin, not during the winter months, but in the spring, the Syrians are going to come and attack you again, and you need to be ready. Okay? You need to be ready. And so that's the implication of the text here. Now, when we come now to the Battle of Aphek, 
we, we see that in verses 23 through 43. And it starts out, the text starts out in verse 23 with really, it's interesting, the thinking of the Syrians. Now, I need you kind of bring you up to speed with where they're at culturally at this time. So this is about 3,000 years ago. What's happening here is, is they view things completely different than we did. It wasn't a scientific age where everything's viewed with terms of science or might or strength or whatever. They had a polytheistic view of the world. And so when they attacked a country, they didn't just attack the country, they attacked the gods of that country. So when Israel won the victory in the battle for Samaria, the servants of Ben-Hadad were thinking in terms of the gods of Israel won the battle. Now, here's what I want you to see. The text very clearly tells you when you come to verse 23, it mentions their gods, their gods of the hills. Now, why would they say gods? Well, because remember, Israel is suffering from one problem that is major that God is displeased with them, idolatry. They are also worshiping the Canaanite gods, Baal, Asheroth. So for someone outside looking in, they would say, well, the gods of Israel are the gods of the hills. All right, so they're viewing it in terms of the plural. So they're trying to figure out how to beat the gods of Israel. Well, you and I know it's not the gods of Israel, it's the God of Israel, Yahweh. So here's what they come up with. Therefore, they should attack the forces of Israel in the plain where they're stronger. Okay? So they decided, okay, the reason why we lost because we were fighting in the hills, the gods of Israel are the gods of the hills. But in the plain, we're stronger. That's where our gods are stronger, and we're going to beat them there. So that's what their thinking is, okay? So they think the God of Israel is only a God of the hills. Now you got to keep that in mind as we get further into the text. So in the spring, Ben-Hadad gathered the Syrians and attacked Israel at Aphek, okay? So he gathers his forces and he attacks Israel at Aphek, which is in the plains, the prophet proclaimed, that prophet shows up again, the prophet proclaimed that God would give the victory. God's going to give the victory. So he shows up. He already warned Ahab, get yourself ready. It's going to happen again. Of course it happens. And then the prophet shows up and says, God's going to give you the victory. Now, the prophet also says why God's going to give him the victory. Because it has nothing to do with Israel. All right. This was because the Syrians said that the God of Israel was a God of the hills only. Whoa. Okay, so God is taking personal offense now to what the Syrians said. And God's going to give Israel the victory because he has been personally affronted. The God of the universe, the God of Israel, has been basically told he is only the God of the hills. And so he's going to show the Syrians that he's not. Israel would have the victory so that all will know 
that God is the Lord. So Israel's going to have the victory, not just in the hills like it happened with the battle for Samaria, but now with this battle in Aphek in the plains, God's wanting to show, I'm the God of everywhere, and I'm giving Israel the victory. Okay? I'm giving Israel the victory. So here's what we see happening. So it basically, man, what a victory. Israel killed 100,000 Syrian foot soldiers, and the rest fled to Aphek. So he killed 100,000. 100,000 were killed by the Israeli army, foot soldiers. And the rest of Ben-Hadad's army, they flee to Aphek, because obviously that's a city. At Aphek, another 27,000 Syrian men were killed, and Ben-Hadad hit in an inner chamber. Now, it's interesting. The text will tell you the 27 were killed because a wall fell on them. That's obviously must have been a big wall. We're not sure exactly what happened. But the reality is, is that Ben-Hadad is running for his life. Why? Because he's hiding, terrified, in his inner chamber. Okay? So he's in Aphek, took over a place. He's hiding himself. Okay? Hiding himself. Now, this is where the story gets interesting as we are introduced to another aspect of Ahab's disobedience. Okay? So I want you to look at what happens. When you read the text, Ben-Hadad is hiding in his inner chamber. The servants of Ben-Hadad told him to appeal to the mercy of Ahab. You know, we've heard this about Ahab, and if you present yourself in a proper way, maybe you can appeal to the mercy of Ahab, is what he's saying here. So the servants of Ben-Hadad told him to appeal to the mercy of Ahab. So here's what they do. They humbled themselves before Ahab, and he spared Ben-Hadad. So it worked. They humbled themselves, put sackcloth on, groveled on the ground, asked for mercy, and Ahab and all of his feeling important decides to spare Ben-Hadad. We've seen this before with one other king. Do you remember that king? First Samuel, King Saul, destroy the Amalekites. He gets King Agag. Rather than killing King Agag, he decides to keep him alive. You see Ahab doing the very same thing here. So here's what happens. Because he keeps him alive, there's a treaty. So Ahab made a treaty with Ben-Hadad, and in turn he gave Israel back some cities. So he makes this treaty with Ben-Hadad. We're going to have peace now. And, and of course, because Ben-Hadad is the loser, he's going to give up some of the cities that his father had taken from Israel. They're going to be returned to Israel. Some of the cities, not all of them. But he also makes an allowance for commerce. Okay, because this is what's important. Yes, they're fighting each other, but they want to do commerce with each other. So Ben-Hadad allowed Israel to set up marketplaces in Damascus, in the capital of Syria. So he allowed Israel to set up marketplaces. In fact, he said, 
I want you to set them up like my father set them up in Samaria. Obviously, there was a time when the Syrians beat Samaria. We've seen that before. And they set up marketplaces as well, allowing for the flow of products, commerce, economics. Now, here's what happens now. This is where the story, again, gets interesting. And it's almost perplexing as well. Okay, so here's what I want you to see. All right? So as we get further on in chapter 20, the battles are won, the victory is Israel, everything should be fine. Well, it's not fine. All right, so one of the sons of the prophets told a man to strike him as the Lord commanded. Now, at this point, you're going to see this term referred to several times throughout the books of Kings. Sons of the prophets. Who are the sons of the prophets, George? Well, the sons of the prophets were basically a guild or a school, a, a, basically a school for the law. These were people who studied, the men who studied God's law, and they were a guild. They were a guild of people who God would often speak through them, use them, because they were men devoted to the teaching of the law, and he would speak to the nation through these men. So here's one of the prophets. He's one of the sons of the prophets. And he tells a man to strike him as the Lord commanded. So God moves this prophet to have somebody strike him in the face as the Lord commanded. So he asked this dude, I want you to strike me. That man refused. The man refused, and the prophet proclaimed his death by a lion. Like, whoa, wait a minute. Isn't this like the time when the guy was told to go tell Jeroboam his thing, but then return back to his home? Don't stop. He gets tricked. And of course, he gets killed because he disobeyed the Lord. Same thing. The issue here is, dis is obedience. God is telling somebody through a prophet, strike me. The guy refuses. The Lord says, okay, you're going to die. And he's very clear how he's going to die. He's going to die by a lion. So guess what happens? When the man left, he was attacked and killed by a lion. Okay? Attacked and killed by a lion. Now, the prophet then asked another man to strike him, and the man inflicted a wound. That's almost anticlimactic. If you're the second guy and this prophet comes to you and says, the Lord wants you to strike me, wound me, I think you would realize, after realizing the first guy who didn't do it ended up dead, I'm going to do this. And so he inflicts a wound on the prophet. Somehow he inflicts a wound. This is all part of the plan, because we're going to see what happens now. The prophet then disguised himself and waited by the road for the king to pass by. Now, how did he disguise himself? The text tells you that he had disguised himself with a bandage on the wound on his head. So he looked rough, like he'd been wounded, and he's waiting by the road for the king to pass by, King Ahab to pass by. The king passed by, and the prophet called out to the king. So the king's passing by, probably with his procession, and this prophet draws attention from the king. Oh, king! Whatever way he gets the attention of the king, he calls out to the king. 
And so here's where it gets interesting. He said that he was a soldier from the battle who was charged to guard a prisoner. So he tells King Ahab, you know what, I was a soldier, I was in the battle, and I wasn't told to be in charge of a certain prisoner. And he was told that if the prisoner was missing, he would be responsible with his life or a talent of silver. So he's basically told, you watch this guy, and if he's missing, it'll either be your life or your money. Well, the prophet then said the prisoner escaped, and the king proclaimed his judgment was sure. So the prophet said, I got busy doing other things. The guy disappeared, and Ahab says, well, you've already spoken your own judgment. You either need to pay with your life, or you need to pay with finances. So here's where it gets interesting. This is all an object lesson. We've seen this before. Remember, like when Nathan was confronting David and he told the story of the man who had a, had a ewe lamb and the rich guy took it and ate it and so forth. Now, this is the same type of thing that's happening here. So the prophet removed his disguise and the king recognized who he was. So obviously the king kind of knows who these sons of the prophets are because they probably are proclaiming things against him all the time. So the prophet removed his disguise and the king recognizes, oh, this is a prophet of the Lord. The prophet proclaimed the word of the Lord in judgment of Ahab. So here's what's going on. Here's where the story gets interesting. God is now bringing a word of judgment against Ahab because of what he's done. You're saying, what do you mean what he's done? Well, you're going to see here in a moment. Just as Ahab spared the one who was destined to destruction, he would die in his place. So God is saying through the prophet, look, Ben-Hadad was destined for destruction. You were to wipe him out, the enemy of Israel, who would keep coming and keep coming. And we're going to see, folks, that the Syrians kept coming. And you were supposed to take his life, but because you wouldn't take his life, your life will be taken instead. You will die in his place. But he doesn't just end there. The Lord also stated that Israel's people would be destroyed as the Syrians should have. Because he wouldn't, wasn't willing to wipe out the Syrians, Israel would now be destroyed. And we come to the end of chapter 20. Now, when Ahab heard this, the prophet, when he, when he heard the prophet's word, he was depressed as he went to Samaria. Well, yeah, it would be depressing if somebody's telling you, here's the word of the Lord, you're going to die because you were disobedient. Now, I want, to, want you to recognize something. This is what Ahab is hearing many times now. And he's going to hear it at least another two times. We're going to see it mentioned again in chapter 21. But when we get into chapter 22, we're going to see another prophet making the same proclamation with a specific battle that's coming. So that brings us to chapter 21, which is Ahab's sin against Naboth. Okay, Naboth. Now, 
when you come to chapter 1, at the beginning, uh, that after these things, it says, and it came to pass after these things, what is that? The battles of chapter 20, that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. So here's our first point. Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard next to the palace of Ahab. So Ahab obviously has this wonderful palace, but right next door is this vineyard. There's this possession of one of the Israelites, and his name is Naboth. Now, Ahab wanted the vineyard for a vegetable garden, and he offered to buy it from Naboth. He basically offered a couple things. He said, look, let me have your vineyard. I'll give you another vineyard. And if it's not another property that you want, I'll give you money. He's basically saying, I want your vineyard. I'll pay anything for it. What's your price? Okay, what's your price? Well, Naboth refused to sell it since it was the inheritance of his forefathers. All right, so let's stop for a moment. What are we talking about here? This is a special place to Naboth. Why? Because it was the inheritance. What do you mean the inheritance, George? Well, remember, okay, remember, if you go back to Joshua, when Israel entered into Canaan, into the promised land, each of the 12 tribes received an inheritance, an allotment in Israel. Then from that initial allotment to each of the tribes, each of the clans and each of the families there and the members there each received an inheritance. That is an allotment of land. That was theirs. And so there were laws like don't remove the ancient boundary stones because why? The boundary stones basically designated what was the inheritance, what belonged to people. So here we are several hundred years later. The kingdom is now divided the northern kingdom, but there's this guy named Naboth, and he's still in possession of the initial inheritance from his forefathers when they entered into Canaan. And so it's special to him. And he doesn't want to sell it. Okay? He doesn't want to sell it. Now, because he refused, he was refused by Naboth, Ahab was displeased and would not eat. He basically got depressed again. He's a sulking baby, so to speak. If I can't get what I want, then I'm just going to go over here and sit in the corner and nobody's going to bother me. This is the kind of attitude that Naboth, I mean, that Ahab has because Naboth wouldn't sell him the piece of property. If I can't get what I want, then I'm not going to be happy. This is the attitude. Well, here's what happens. Jezebel, remember Jezebel? She is the daughter of the king of Sidon. She is an evil woman. She has introduced the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth to Israel, has caused Ahab to sin by leading all of Israel to sin. Well, ah Jezebel questioned why Ahab was depressed and not eating his meals. Natural question. What's up with you? What's going on? Why the depression? What's happening here? That's what we see happening here. So Ahab explained that he wanted Naboth's vineyard 
and Naboth refused to sell. So I want this guy's vineyard. I have this perfect vegetable garden. You know, we can have these tomato plants and all these other things there, but he won't give it to me. He won't sell it to me. That's why I'm sulking. That's why I'm not eating. Well, Jezebel told Ahab that he was king and should eat because she will get the vineyard for him. She's like, this ain't no thing. You, you're a king. Be a king. Be the man. You start eating again. Don't worry. I'll take care of this. And she does. Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name to the leaders of Jezreel and set up a conspiracy. So she sends letters to the rulers, the elders, the leaders of Jezreel, where Naboth lives, and she sets up a conspiracy in Ahab's name. She told the leaders to proclaim a feast and seat Naboth in the seat of highest honor at this feast. You honor Naboth. You sit him in the highest place. Two accusers were to be seated with him and accuse him of blaspheming the God, blaspheming God and the king. So here's what we see happening. So she's got this thing set up. Have this feast. Honor Naboth. But while he's there, I want you to have two people accuse him and I want you... They're to accuse him of blaspheming God and the king. He was then to be taken immediately and stoned to death because that's what, quote, the law required. Somebody was found by two witnesses to have blasphemed God. He was to be stoned to death according to the law. Well, the leaders did as they were told and Naboth died by stoning. So it all happens just like she set it up. They have a big feast. They bring him in, sit him in the place of honor. They have these two guys there. These two guys get up and say, well, Naboth was blaspheming Yahweh and blaspheming King Ahab. And the people get all incensed. They grab him, take him, stone him. They kill him. The leaders then sent word to Jezebel that Naboth had been stoned. So they send back a letter. Okay, it's taken care of. Naboth is dead. So Jezebel told Ahab to arise and take Naboth's vineyard as his own. Hey, honey, it's all taken care of. You go take your vineyard. Naboth's not a problem anymore. We see that happening. Now Ahab took possession of the vineyard as he heard that Naboth was dead. So guess what? He does it. He goes over, my new vegetable garden. He takes possession. Now, again, we're seeing here another example of the evil of Ahab not willing to honor the inheritance of someone, using means of murder and stealing to get what he wants, all at the bidding of his evil wife. So here's what happens. 
The word of the Lord, the Lord told Elijah to go to Ahab, who was in Naboth's vineyard. So the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Elijah. Hey, I want you to go and see Ahab. He will be in Naboth's vineyard. You go there. Elijah was to confront Ahab with murdering and taking possession. I mean, he's sending the right guy who tells it like it is. He shows up. You're to go there and you're to talk to him about murdering Naboth and taking possession of his vineyard. In the spot where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, the dogs will lick up his blood. This is what the Lord says. You go tell him, you confront him, and you tell him, in the place where Naboth's blood was licked up by the animals, your blood will be licked up there as well. This is a prophecy. So Elijah goes and does it. Ahab asked if Elijah, his enemy, had found him. So Elijah shows up. Ahab says, is this Elijah? Has my enemy found me? Because again, Ahab does not recognize the prophets of the Lord. And he views Elijah as his enemy. But notice how Elijah responds. Elijah stated that Ahab had sold himself to evil before the Lord. And what does that mean, sold himself? Well, he basically gave himself over. In his rejection of God, and this is what people do, People don't reject God simply because they don't believe that he is or whatever. They don't want to believe. They don't want to answer. And so they sell themselves over. What does that mean? They give themselves to what they want. If I don't have, I, I don't need God, I'm going to do what I want. And that's exactly what Ahab does here. He sold himself to evil before the Lord. So Elijah stated that the Lord would kill every male in Ahab's household, free and slave. So basically he's telling Ahab, look, your entire household, any male there is there, will be killed because of your sin. Listen, folks, this is what the reality of the consequences of sin are. Consequences of sin do not rest just with the one individual. They spread out and affect others. And here we are, we're seeing it. Basically, the Lord is saying, your family is going to die. In fact, the Lord would make his house like the house of Jeroboam and the house of Bashah. Remember the past kings of Israel? Jeroboam, his house was to be wiped out. Bashah, his house was to be wiped out. Now, Ahab, son of Omri, his house is to be wiped out as well. Concerning Jezebel, now this is interesting. He isn't just talking about Ahab. He's talking about Jezebel because Jezebel has been the one who has led Israel astray through Ahab. Well, concerning Jezebel, the dogs will eat her by the wall in Jezreel. Well, that's a pretty specific prophecy here that she will be killed and her body will be eaten by dogs. There was no one, the text tells us, no one like Ahab who sold himself to wickedness because of Jezebel. 
There was nobody like him up to this point who sold himself to wickedness. Ahab followed after the idols like the Amorites whom the Lord cast out before him. So like the Amorites who were cast out before Israel from the land, he's following after the same gods, Baal, Asheroth, and their practices. Now, here's what happens. Now, this is interesting because, again, we're going to see the grace of the Lord. When Ahab heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted as he mourned. So he humbled himself. This is the first time you're going to see this in the text. Up to this point, he's not done that. Even back when the prophets were, were defeated on Mount Carmel, there has not been an issue where Ahab is repenting. Even when he was confronted because he didn't kill Ben-Hadad. This is, look, notice what's happening here. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted as he mourned. The Lord then told Elijah to see how Ahab humbled himself before him. So God comes to Elijah and says, hey, take note. Look at how Elijah is humbling himself. Now we're going to see this same type of humbling with regards to uh, in, when we look at the prophet Jonah with regards to how Nineveh repented. They did the same thing. So Elijah is supposed to see that. Now, because Ahab humbled himself, the Lord will bring calamity on Ahab's son. So because he humbled himself, God's going to bring about this calamity and destroy the house of Ahab, but it's going to happen in Ahab's son's time, not in Ahab's time. That's grace. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Remember, that was what happened with Jeroboam. Jeroboam, I'm going to wipe you out. But because Jeroboam repented, mourned, humbled himself before the Lord, the Lord said, okay, it'll be during your son's time. And we see that even later on with some of the godly kings. Hezekiah, when he sinned, I'm going to bring this calamity not in your time, but in your son's time. So we see that. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 21. Now, here's what we've seen so far. We've seen now two different prophets. This unknown prophet from chapter 20 and this second prophet in chapter 21 basically saying that Ahab is going to die. And so next week, when we come back into our study in chapter 22, we're going to see Ahab's death. And we're going to see the death of the most wicked king in the northern kingdom.